Amen. Thank you so much, Dan. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 2. It's good to see you, as I said earlier. Glad we could be together. Glad we could pursue together the joy that Dan talked about and that uh, Greg and Kim read about as well. Acts chapter 2. Again, I want to use this passage to help us think about Christmas and to encourage our hearts in light of this Christmas season. Think about the question, what is your favorite Christmas song? And if so, why? One of my favorites is Joy to the World, which happens to be uh, what we're celebrating today in light of Advent. And if you look at the lines of that hymn or that song, it starts out by saying, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It says, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. It says, He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And then he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the wonders of his love. And so there are certain phrases in there that really stand out to me as I think about that. The question is, though, how is the coming of Jesus joy to the world? And what particular ways? How, sh- how are we to uh, actually receive and enjoy the joy that is meant to be received and enjoyed in Christ? You may remember that the uh, shepherds, which we sing about, um, were told by the angel uh, that they were not to be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so it's very fitting for us to sing about joy, to focus on joy, and to highlight the fact that Christmas is very much about joy. And when you relate that to what we started talking about last week, about Christmas being about giving and receiving, uh, think about what you're doing at this season, which I assume you're doing, which is thinking about um, who you're going to give something to materially or in other ways, maybe, and think about the thought process. What kinds of questions are you asking uh, about that gift that you're thinking of giving? Well, you're probably asking something along the lines of, how can I say I love you to this person? What does this person need? Or how can I bring joy, pleasure, happiness to this person in some way, shape, or form? And that's very much the spirit of Christmas when we ask those kinds of things, because that is indeed how God gave to us. Well, um, let me read for us Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, and we want to think about gift giving and those various aspects of how we think about that through this passage. It says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, this is after Peter's sermon on Pentecost, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 
the things that I want to highlight today and the next two Sundays are seen in verse 38 where he talks about the forgiveness of your sins. Also in verse 38, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then finally in verse 39, the promise. And what I'd like to talk about is the fact that when we think about the idea of God giving us his son, we can say this box represents the gift of Jesus at Christmas time. The Bible says in John 3.16, as we know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. And then we highlighted last week that there is still the issue of whether or not we receive the gift. God has given the gift, and the question is, do we receive the gift or not? As it says in John chapter 1, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And so Christmas is very much about God's gift to the world of his son. The question is, and as we talked about last week, how do we receive that gift? In order to receive the gift, we have to see our sin for what it is. We have to turn to God for mercy and for grace. And we have to trust Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. And so even though God might be extending the gift gift to us, if we're running away and running after sin, we will not receive the gift. We have to see what we're running after, turn away from it, and turn to God for mercy. And then realize that this uh, box that says Jesus on it says Savior and Lord. And so to receive Jesus is to receive him both as Savior and as Lord. Um, But I want us to see that there are three things that you could say or or in this gift that God gives us. And it's hard for me to get this box out of here. But there's a box within the box. And this first box relates to the fact that God's gift of his son gives us the answer for our past, which is what we're going to focus on today. But there's also a box within this that box. And that box represents God's gift, gives us the answer for our present as well. And there's a box within that box. And in that box is the gift of the answer for our future. And so God's gift is multifaceted. And it's very important that we realize that and that we see that and that we rejoice in it and apply it because it does make the difference in light of what Dan was praying and talking about with regard to those who struggle at this time of year with depression and discouragement and have a a hard time finding joy in the midst of their circumstances. And so God in his gift to us of his son has included other gifts that are meant to bring us joy. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, it says, um, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And what I want to focus on today is that for our joy, God has given us the indescribable to forgive us for the inexcusable. And that's the very first gift we need to see and rejoice in. You might remember in Matthew chapter 2, you have the Magi that come to worship uh, the newborn king. And the gift of God, Jesus, is given gifts. And the question is, why did the Magi give gifts to Jesus? And 
we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't actually tell us exactly what, you know, why they were given. Um, it could be that they felt like they were treasures that a king deserved. It had to be something along those lines. But others, like uh, the church father Origen and others, have tried to imagine what maybe those gifts represented in light of how they're spoken of in the Old Testament. And that's why Origen could say gold was given to Jesus, the baby Jesus, uh, as to a king. That it pointed to his being the king uh, as they said that they were there to worship the king. They gave him frankincense. And Origen said that might indeed point to the fact that he was God because frankincense in the Old Testament was part of the incense offered to God and God only. And then myrrh was given to him because it was often used with regard to things like embalming. And it referred to his humanity and his ultimately his death on the cross. And so um, you could see in those gifts... Uh, things that point to who he was and what he would do. I would also say that if you look at the broad way in which those things were used in the ancient world and in the Old Testament, you could also see aspects of what he would give. Not only who he is and what he would do, but also what he would give. Because, for instance, gold obviously not only pointed to the king, but pointed to the kingdom And he promises in the future a kingdom to all those who trust him. Myrrh wasn't simply something that was used when you died. It was also something that was used to make life more comfortable, indeed more sweet, more livable in various ways. And it could indeed point to our present needs. And then frankincense was obviously something that the priests used to offer up incense to God, and so it pointed to God, but it also pointed to the priesthood, the intercession of the priests who both represented God to man and man to God. And therefore, it certainly could point to the aspect of Jesus being our great high priest who would give us, indeed, the very thing that we need in light of our past. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. Again, I'll just draw your attention to verse 38, where Peter, in response to them, who, when they said, what shall we do? He said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God gives us the answer to our past. Uh, the biggest issue that we have with regard to our past is the guilt in our past, whether that's the guilt of the last few minutes, the guilt of the last few days, the guilt of the last few years, the guilt of the last few decades, whatever it may be, the biggest issue with our past is the guilt in that. The word forgiveness there means release, and especially release from a debt, a debt that's owed, a debt that needs to be paid, that someone needs to pay, and it's a release from you having to pay that debt yourself. The word for sin there is the word that points to missing the mark. And so therefore, uh, the Bible talks about the fact that we need to be forgiven for missing the mark. And what mark is that? Being like God and doing what God says we're to do or not doing what God says we're not to do. When we think about the issue of guilt, it's about both what we've done that we shouldn't have done 
and what we didn't do that we should have done. Even an atheist like Voltaire could say, every man is guilty of all the good he did not do. You know, a lot of times we say, well, what did I do that's so bad? Well, we could point to things, God could point to things, um, but we could just start with what have you done, what, what have you not done that you should have done? And so when it comes to guilt, there's all kinds of things that can truly be pointed to, and one way to think about that is to think in terms especially of not what do I expect of myself or what other people expect of me, but what does God expect of me? What are his commands? Someone has said, we will give an account one day because we are accountable. And there is a standard. God is the one before whom we are accountable. And our lives will be compared against his perfect character. This is why we feel guilty, because deep down we know we are guilty. Our guilty feelings and sense of shame come because we have violated God's good and wise commandments. And we know that all those commandments are about loving God and loving others. And we've failed to keep those, and we've violated those in various ways. John MacArthur talks about the fact that our culture has declared war on guilt because our culture encourages people to sin in various ways and then tells people not to feel guilty about it and says you should not tell anyone that they, shouldn't, that they should feel guilty about it or tell them that they need to change and repent. You can't counsel some people to be different. Um, because the culture says uh, there is no guilt. Why is that? Because there is no standard. Why is that? Because there is no God, according to the culture that we live in. But the reality is, is that we are all universally guilty. And as someone has said, um, the universal problem of guilt is not owing to the fact that we have failed our fellow man, or simply because we've done that, but because we have failed God. We have not done what God has called us to do. R.C. Sproul said, Perhaps the reason you feel guilty is because you are guilty. The answer to your guilt problem is not rationalization or self-justification, but forgiveness. The price of forgiveness is repentance and ultimately um, the work of Christ to which we turn to. Without it, there is no forgiveness and no relief from the reality of guilt. And so for just a minute, let's think about how do we deal with guilt? Well, some people just kind of joke about it and kind of, you know, try to uh, laugh it off. Like Robin Williams um, was a comedian, and he claimed to be an Episcopalian. And they would ask him about his faith as a Christian. And he said, I think about my Episcopalian uh, religion in terms of Catholic light. Uh, The same religion, but half the guilt. And so for him, he could kind of of make light of the whole issue of guilt. Um, We do similar things, but in different ways. We might not joke about that kind of thing, but we might simply just deny it in the sense that we might say, I haven't done anything that bad. Nobody's perfect, but I haven't done anything that bad. Or we might suppress it. We might say, I just don't think about it. You know, I just put my headphones on and I just go about my day. Um, sometimes we project it. Um, what's the problem here? Is it me or is it you? It's you, isn't it? It's, it's your fault. That's why things are the way they are. 
Or we might actually do penance. You know, I'll make up for it. Yes, I'm guilty of doing something I shouldn't have done or not doing what I should have done, but I'll make up for it. I'll, I'll do something. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. I'll say some Hail Marys, whatever it might be, to uh, try to deal with it. Or we might try to remove it in other ways. But the question is, how are we going to do that? A good illustration that I think I've shared before of the situation we're in is in the movie National Treasure. Uh, the main character has stolen the um, Declaration of Independence, supposedly for a good reason. And an FBI agent is talking to him. He said, there's only two options here. You either go to prison for a long time or you help us find the Declaration of Independence and then you still go to prison for a long time, but you feel better about it. And uh, he says, you know, there's a door that doesn't lead to prison. And uh, the FBI agent says, someone's got to go to prison, Ben. Later on in the movie, the same kind of discussion goes on. And um, Ben says, you know, I'd really love to not have to go to prison. And he says again, the agent, someone's got to go to prison, Ben. And then he says, I think I can help with that. And what he does is he he fingers someone else and they put him in jail for uh, what happened. What's the relationship here to what we're talking about? The reality is all of us are guilty. All of us have committed what we could call crimes against heaven. And someone has to go to prison. Someone has to be punished for it. Someone has to receive the just consequence of that sin. The question is whether or not someone else can be our substitute, whether or not someone else will take the punishment that we have received. It's interesting in the Old Testament when God reveals himself to Moses, you can actually see this in Exodus 34, God says this in revealing himself to Moses, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Ever thought about how those two things can go together? God says, I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Well, you could take that as God is going to punish all the guilty, but he's going to forgive those who aren't guilty. Because he said he forgives those who sin, but he punishes those who are guilty. So is, you know, are some people really guilty and other people aren't? He kind of forgives them. I mean, in the sense, are some people in the inexcusable category of guilt? And God will definitely punish them. But then there are, Uh, People who commit excusable sins, and God forgives those, but he punishes the inexcusable. That's the way we tend to think about it, is there are inexcusable things that God will never forgive and I will never forgive. I'm just glad that my sin is excusable and God has promised to forgive that. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is God does forgive sin, but he always punishes the guilty. And the fact is, we're all guilty. So how in the world can both those things be true? Only if God provides a substitute. And that's why we find in Isaiah 53, where it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him 
Jesus to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. So God's answer to the fact that he longs to be merciful but will not be unjust must punish sin. His answer is Jesus. It's the gift of his son. It says in Psalm 32, you forgave the guilt of my sin. The Bible says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In Micah 7, it says, he will again have compassion on us, who will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. It says in Jeremiah 31, God says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God isn't talking about amnesia. What does it mean for him not to remember our sin? It means he will will not punish it. Because it says in Hosea 8, he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. So God remembering our sin means that he punishes it. But when he says, I will forget it, means I will not punish you. I release you from that debt of sin against me. There's a number of different references in the, the book of Acts where the importance of seeing what God has done in Jesus is related to the forgiveness of sins. Um, in, in Acts 5.31, it speaks of granting repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 10.43, in him, whoever believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Acts 13.38, through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And in Acts 26, Paul talks about the fact that God called him to preach that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Why is forgiveness of sins so important? Well, obviously, it's important because we cannot be right with God. And we cannot escape hell without the forgiveness of our sins. That's what hell is. It's the just punishment for guilty sinners. But there's another aspect of it that relates especially to what Dan was saying earlier with regard to those who really struggle with depression and discouragement and those kinds of things. Because Dr. Carl Menninger, a well-known psychiatrist, once said that if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. So he's saying a lot of what afflicts us in terms of mentally and emotionally and even physically can be related to the issue of guilt. That's why it says in Psalm 38, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My sins are crushing me mentally, emotionally, physically. So the forgiveness of our sins is huge in all kinds of ways, both eternally and even uh, now, another aspect of the issue of guilt is that it's so important, the forgiveness of our sins and the dealing with guilt is so important to our relationships. Um, can you think of something that you found hard to forgive in the past that somebody did to you, said to you, or didn't do for you or say to you? Can you think of something right now that you have not forgiven? Guilt points to the inexcusable. 
I, I don't forgive things that I consider excusable. Or what did I just say there? <laughs> I, I can find it easier to forgive things that I consider excusable. I don't forgive things typically that I consider inexcusable is what I was trying to say. I may have mixed that up. But my point is, like C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. See, there's two issues with regard to guilt. One is my guilt. What am I going to do with my guilt? The other issue is other people's guilt. What am I going to do with their guilt? And do I see my guilt as inexcusable? Do I see their guilt as inexcusable? And what am I going to do about that? That's why Jesus could say things like, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Is that a works-based forgiveness? You know, if you forgive, God forgives you, and so you have to earn your forgiveness by forgiving others. I don't believe that's what's being talked about at all. I do think if you read all the verses that talk that way, it's saying two things. It's saying to Christians, if you resist forgiving, your Heavenly Father will discipline you. Because it is at the very foundation of the Christian life that we have been forgiven and we're to extend that forgiveness to others. So at best, God will discipline his children if they do not forgive the inexcusable in others. The other aspect of it, though, is if I'm the kind of person who will not forgive the inexcusable in others and does not do that at all, that's evidence that we have not been forgiven of our own inexcusable sins. You see, when we talk about the forgiveness of the inexcusable, it's in the context of verse 36 of Acts 2, where um, Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the most inexcusable thing anyone could do. The most inexcusable thing anyone could do is to murder the innocent Son of God. And yet Peter didn't say, I'm sorry, you've committed the inexcusable. You cannot be forgiven. He says, no, you can be forgiven of the greatest inexcusable sin that was ever committed. You can be forgiven. And when we see that that's what God has done for us, that all of our sins are inexcusable, how do we know that? Because Jesus had to die in our place in order to free us from the penalty of those sins. If they were excusable, Jesus would not have to die for us. Therefore, we know that if we are sinners who are trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation and our forgiveness, it's because we have inexcusable sins. And Jesus had to come and die for those inexcusable sins. And the question is, as God continues to forgive our inexcusable sins, even as we continue to sin, are we continuing to forgive the inexcusable sins of those around us? It says in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So, bring this back to the hymn, Joy to the World. How does all this relate to joy? 
you can't be filled with joy if you're ruled by guilt. Whether it's the guilt of your own sin or the guilt of someone else's sin. You can't be filled with joy if you don't know the forgiveness of your own inexcusable sins. You can't be filled with joy if you won't forgive the inexcusable sins of others. Martin Luther said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. There's so much more we could say. but Let me just kind of wrap it up this way. If we don't receive the gift of God's Son, we stand guilty before God. But even as Christians, if we receive the gift of God's Son, but we don't receive the gift of forgiveness in such a way that we actually forgive others, and that we actually forgive others, both of those things, we will be ruled by guilt. Our own guilt and the guilt of others. It's interesting, uh, Robin Williams, the comedian that uh, took his own life back in 2014, I mentioned him earlier, Um, he loved his children, and someone said about Robin Williams, Robin's children had always been a dependable source of some of the purest, most natural joy he had experienced. But when he saw them now, they were also a reminder that he had chosen to end his marriage to Marcia and break up their home. It filled him with shame to think that he had inflicted the divorce upon them. And the shame compounded itself as he came to believe he had taken something perfect and corrupted it. Even when his children told him that he had no reason to hold on to his guilt and nothing to apologize for, Zach, one of his children, said, he couldn't hear it. He could never hear it. And he wasn't able to accept it. He was firm in his conviction that he was letting us down and he was for them to say you have no reason to feel guilty was a lie yes he had reason to feel guilty what he did not have reason to feel is that there was no hope in the face of his guilt that there was no means of forgiveness and rescue from his guilt, that there wasn't a God who stood ready to forgive him if he would turn from his sin, trust in Jesus, and receive the gift that God had provided. See, in Robin Williams' minds, mind, his divorce of his wife and what he did to his children was inexcusable. That's why he couldn't let go of the guilt. It's interesting that Robin Williams, when he was asked, what was your favorite story uh, growing up? He said, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. He said, when I became a father, I read the whole C.S. Lewis Narnia series to my children. That's really interesting because you know, at the heart of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is the story of someone who does the inexcusable. Edmund does the inexcusable. And there's only one solution. According to the white witch, he ought to die. And she was right. But there was a solution. It was Aslan laying down his life on the stone table. Aslan giving the indescribable gift to deliver a sinner from his inexcusable sin. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. 
And that's what is truly the wonder of Christmas. So let me just conclude by asking the question, several questions. What will you do about your guilt? We all have it every day. What will you do about it? Your guilt. Secondly, what will you do about the guilt of others? There are two things that are certain in life beyond death and taxes. I'm going to sin and someone's going to sin against me. What am I going to do about both of those realities? Thirdly, are you resting and rejoicing in the gift of forgiveness and the gift of God's Son, which is for your guilt and my guilt? And then finally, do you need to give the gift of forgiveness to others this Christmas? Material gifts don't mean a whole lot unless they come with real love. And forgiveness is a part of real love. Again, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we can rejoice no matter what's going on in our lives this Christmas, no matter what our past has been, whether the past few minutes, the past few days, the past few weeks or years or decades. We can rejoice because you have given us an indescribable gift in the gift of your Son so that we might be forgiven of the inexcusable. Please help all of us here to receive that gift, to turn from our sin, to trust in you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior and our Lord, and grant us grace this Christmas to see where we might be not forgiving the inexcusable in others, and grant us grace to give that gift of forgiveness this Christmas as well. We love you and we thank you and we commit our hearts and lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.